Hello, and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gabar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. We have a special episode for you this December of the Southwest Archaeology Podcast from the National Park Service. This month is Supporting the Parks Month at the NPS, where we get to celebrate our partners. National parks and our programs were built on partnerships, and we'd like to highlight the importance of these relationships, which range from citizen donations to friends groups, cooperating associations, and volunteer time. So today, we'll take a look at one aspect of partnerships by talking with Angeline Bass of the University of New Mexico and Doug Porter of the University of Vermont. They're both academic partners through a program called Cooperating Ecosystem Studies Units, who help us in historic preservation at our monuments. Uh, before we get to that interview, we'll have... Um an introduction to the topic of historic preservation uh, as um, as they do it with an example that uh, from a park that we've worked out with them recently. We'll have the interview. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the um, about historic preservation, and then we'll get to listener questions. So, without further ado, let's get to their work at Montezuma Castle. All right. So, I first met Doug and Angeline probably five years ago. Uh, when they were brought in to help with a project at Montezuma Castle. Um, we brought them in because they are specialists in what they do. They specialize in historic preservation and in understanding uh, ancient architecture. So we wanted to bring them in uh, to try to um, better understand how Montezuma Castle was built and also to develop kind of a preservation plan for how to take care uh, of the cliff dwelling in the future. So understanding particular issues that might affect uh, the cliff dwelling over time and how to possibly um, treat those issues. But what's interesting is that they um, are specialists themselves, but they have access to lots of other uh, scientists and preservation experts uh, in the field um, through their affiliation with the university. And so they were really our conduit um, to be able to uh, reach out to other scientists and kind of get this very comprehensive view of how we should take care of the cliff dwelling, which was very, very useful. What we ended up learning from this project, uh, and we're still learning, but what we've learned so far uh, is in what order the rooms were constructed and how they changed over time, how people in the past might have used them, uh, and that means how they were decorated, particularly uh, what we found is that certain rooms were decorated with different colored plasters, for instance. So there are rooms that have yellow plasters, very bright yellow plasters, uh, and other rooms that had red plasters and white plasters. That's very interesting, and that um, raises a lot of additional questions about how people use the rooms, how they viewed them, uh, maybe what certain colors meant to people in the past. Um, but I think maybe most interestingly is by studying the rooms in a lot of detail and by utilizing experts like, like Doug and Angeline, what we found is that the people who built Montezuma Castle weren't just farmers uh, who happened to build a cliff dwelling. They, will, they really were architects and engineers, and they had a lot of sort of basic knowledge about how to put these things together, and they did a lot of pre-planning. And that's very different than uh, maybe the way that the National Park Service has interpreted cliff dwellings like Montezuma Castle in the past. So it gives us a lot of insight uh, into the people that lived there and maybe a more realistic view um, of what those people's lives were like and the knowledge and skill set that they had in constructing some of these really iconic 
buildings that are now part of the, the National Park Service system here in the American Southwest. That's really cool that all of that, you know, information feeds together to form such a much better picture of people. I know when I've been on the trail at Montezuma Castle, it's sometimes hard for people just even to imagine how you would get up into the castle, let alone what um, daily life would have been like or or what, you know, jobs people would have had um, a thousand years ago. Right. And I think there's uh, maybe a tendency in the past for uh, and maybe today for people to sort of think about um, ancestral people, no matter no matter where in the world, as sort of somehow uh, less sophisticated than we are today. And that's, of course, not true at all. And so right. by looking at the architecture and sort of understanding um, the knowledge and the skill sets that these folks in the past had, uh, and by acknowledging their accomplishments as engineers and architects, that sort of gives us a window into understanding um, how sort of, I guess, sophisticated their, their culture was and um, helps us to understand that they're not all that different from, uh, from modern folks. That's great. Well, why don't we get to their interview and hear about some of their other projects? So this is Matt Gubard in Charlotte Hart. We're here with Doug Porter, who's an assistant professor of engineering at the University of Vermont, and Angeline Bass, who's a research assistant professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico. Hey, guys. Hey. I'm hey, thanks for being here. Okay, so uh, just to orient the listeners a little bit, um, so far we've done a couple of different episodes, and we've talked a lot about historic preservation, mostly how it developed over time, uh, how it became a law or, or a set of laws, um, but we haven't talked a lot about what it is. And it's worth mentioning there's a lot of variety in historic preservation with how it's done and kind of who's involved, and that can depend on the resource type or the type of issue um, that can occur to a particular building, for instance. So you guys, are, I think, are the perfect guest because you have a lot of background uh, and a lot of experience, and oftentimes you guys kind of work as a team, right, that focuses on historic preservation, and you've conducted work all over the world, including a lot of National Park Service uh, units here in the American Southwest. So just so the listeners understand, can you guys talk separately about what each of you specialize in? Sure. Um, I work for a school of engineering, so I've been focused on um, the roles of engineering in historic preservation. Um, and this is included structural and geotechnical disciplines, which, you know, I think everybody kind of expects. Um, but the, the there are lots more roles for engineering in this work. And uh, we've ended up using engineering disciplines that have included non-destructive testing, uh, industrial hygiene, oddly, on some prehistoric structures, uh, fire safety, um, and environmental engineering. Um, and I've also had a lot of experience with, uh, with wood structures. So, uh, those interest me as well. Well, I, um, I specialize in, uh, I always joke with Doug that, uh, 
I specialized in, in the use of the small tools and specializes in the use of big tools. Um, but I focus primarily on archaeological site conservation. And within that context, um, architectural finishes. Um, those include uh, lime and earthen wall plasters, with and without decoration, uh, built-in architectural features for food production or weaving. Um, and I work on both the ancient archaeological sites and historic sites. So um, they, um, they range from very delicate materials in earth um, to very hardy uh, concrete plasters from the mid-20th century. And I think just uh, as a biographical note, uh, probably the first time Angela and I worked together, it was one of those tools, little tools things where um, I had a contract to evaluate painted wood in a mission church on the mid-coast of uh, California on ceiling boards and a retablo and all the little tool places in the church. And um, I think that was the first time we partnered to get our arms entirely around a, a scope of work that uh, neither of us could have done uh, on our own. I was excited to work on the structural wood, the vigas, the things that were holding up the, the roof. And um, these were uh, big timbers that they were decoratively painted, but I was not so much concerned with the decorative paint as I was with what was happening to them uh, in terms of deterioration. And uh, Angeline came on to do all the little tool stuff that she just described, the uh, uh, wood retablo uh, in the church altar and the painted ceiling. That's great. So there's a so it sounds like there's a difference in scale and sort of how you guys may look at projects, but it complements well uh, when when you look at a project as a whole. So you guys were just at Grand Canyon um, doing some work. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there and um, how your uh, different focuses kind of came together to to do the project? Uh, well, I'll chime in, Doug. Um, this is a fantastic project. It is a fantastic project, um, multi-phases, um, but it focuses on the the wall paintings on the interior of the Watchtower. Um, that's a Mary Coulter design building from the 1930s. Uh, the paintings uh, are on each level, uh, and they were made by three artists, two Hopi painters. One of them is Fred Cabote, and the other is Chester Bennett and then an Anglo artist from the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad uh, by the name of Fred Gary. So the, um, the paintings portray scenes uh, or interpretations of Hopi mythology, um, and they're also recreations of designs from pictographs and petroglyphs throughout the Southwest. Um, the building is a, sort of an extraordinary combination of uh, the best of the ancient Southwest, and it was built so that visitors coming to the rim of the Grand Canyon could get these sweeping views of the landscape. Uh, and within that landscape, imagine 
the sort of decorative arts of the people who lived there, and then they combined just a combination. They combined a lot of different um, pictographs and petroglyphs in one building um, to get sort of a sweeping view of the art and architecture of the ancient Pueblo people in one room. Um, so there are a lot of things going on in that um, in that building, but the um, the problem with the wall paintings was that the um, They've been damaged from water leaks, um, over 80 years of water leaks. Uh, and um, the uh, the paintings were hard to read um, through all the soluble salt staining and just the water streaks that run down the wall. So our job was to uh, clean and conserve all of the wall paintings. Uh, and our approach to it um, was to focus on the integrity of the painting. Uh, we weren't there to restore the paintings, to overpaint them, um, but we focused on cleaning up the stains around it so that the paintings come to the foreground. And second, we were trying to preserve the authenticity of the site. On one level, the authenticity of the artist's intent, uh, so no repainting was going to be done, um, but also the authenticity of uh, the visitor experience in a building that only 80 years old, but it has a patina of age that was important to preserve as well. We weren't coming in to give it an entire facelift. Uh, we wanted to preserve its patina. So uh, our approach to wall paintings conservation was a little different than um, than usual. Um, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but uh, one would think that the important part of um, preserving a building is to focus on the causes of the problems, which is, in that case, water leaks into the building. So one part of our project, which Doug will discuss, was to um, look at the building envelope and look at the reasons for the, for the leaks uh, and to design ways to um, reduce the amount of water infiltration to the interior of the building. Uh, the wall paintings part um, was to use uh, conservation-grade materials um, to help preserve the integrity of the painting, um, but also to help protect them in light of the building um, having frequent leaks um, really on the uh, on the scale of every storm that passes through part of the building at least. Um, so why don't you talk a bit about the exterior? Yeah, the big tool piece of this is uh has to do with how the the tower was put together. I think Mary Coulter was looking to uh recreate in some sense uh uh a composite building that uh captured elements from towers at Hovenweep and Mesa Verde and give her or give the Atchison Topeka Santa Fe railroad visitors um kind of a uh an experience of that landscape all in one spot and um she did this by uh combining a, a steel frame which was uh 1931 or 2 uh with uh, a wall construction of uh unreinforced masonry that was supported in steel channels on every floor and um the the 
particular combination of materials and and the ways that the stonework relates to uh, the steel frame has resulted in uh, in leaks that we think probably started soon after the building was completed. Um, and it's this leaking and the salts that are brought in on water coming through the building envelope that uh, uh, do so much damage to the to the paintings. So um, we are, while we're conserving the paintings, trying to understand uh, the performance of the building envelope and provide designs for improvements. Um, we're working with uh, friends and colleagues from Atkinson Nolan Associates, an engineering firm in Boulder. Um, and the work has focused on characterizing the expansion and contraction behavior of the wall materials uh, so that uh, we can accommodate those movements in a, a finished envelope. Um, that work is ongoing, and um, we expect the uh, conservation of the interior to kind of move uh, parallel with uh, the work on the exterior of the building. So I, the sense that I get from from your answers is that this project and probably all historic preservation projects are incredibly complex. Um, what what role do you guys think the scientific process plays in kind of diagnosing and treating some of these issues? Uh, and you touched on this, but how important are multidisciplinary teams? So for our listeners, that's you know people with different backgrounds and different levels of experience. How important are those teams uh, in planning these types of projects? The more complex the the projects, the more important it is that the team. Uh, be made up from several disciplines. Um, we think that the that the analysis of building performance, uh, we're talking about buildings right now, uh, is uh, frequently uh, one of the primary keys to understanding the deterioration conditions that uh, repair would be intended to address. So. Uh, you know, we we were talking about the Desert View Watchtower and the building envelope, and um, there are several large vertical cracks that run through uh, many stories of that building. Um, and repointing those cracks has been ineffective. The, the cracks reappear shortly after the repairs are made. Um, and part of the work that we've done there with uh, Atkinson Nolan has involved uh, monitoring those cracks and then modeling the behavior of the building um, given uh, changes in temperature and wind pressures. And um, we've come to the conclusion on the basis of the data that we've collected that the cracks are unplanned, undesigned, movement joints that um, an architect uh, today would design into her or his building, um, that movement has to be accommodated um, because it's the result of diurnal and seasonal changes in temperature and the stresses imposed by the wind. Um, 
and closing the joint is going to require a flexible sealant that's designed for movement of a particular amount uh, rather than filling them over and over again with brittle mortars that are uh, based on Portland cement. Um, we also use measurement to uh, sometimes to determine the amount of treatment that's necessary. Um, some of the archaeological sites that we're working on have had relatively little intervention and uh, their scientific or research value resides largely in the fact that they, they haven't been changed in, in recent memory. Um, and we feel that sometimes the impacts of repair interventions can be minimized by just by knowing what loads the repaired structures are going to need to support. And I guess we also use science and measurement as ways of understanding risk. Uh, when you approach buildings uh, and are kind of surrounded by the results of decades or centuries of deterioration kind of on all sides, um, the inclination is to think in terms of, uh, of uh, painting everything with one brush, of kind of treating all of the cracks equally and so on. Um, and uh, we know frequently that, that this is not the case, that different parts of structures uh, have differing levels of risk. And by understanding the risk in advance, um, we're able to focus our treatment on those places most at risk, uh, letting a lot of the rest go. I have a comment too, Doug. Um, I have the same um, need for science uh, and multidisciplinary um, involvement. Um, we have that same need on every site we go to, uh, especially the ancient sites where we don't um, know or understand the building technology or the materials combinations very well. Um, we have a hard time um, understanding how something decays if we don't understand how it was constructed and what it was constructed with. Um, so science helps us also um, look at the composition of materials, the combination of those materials, and and how they are um, put together. The multidisciplinary aspect of it is important um, because you need so many specialists to help under help you understand um, uh, that building technology. Uh, the uh, for earth and plasters uh, and lime plasters, um, it's important to understand um, the modern technology um, and their appearance in the modern times, so that you can understand why they fail the way they do. Using these teams and um, and new science that comes out helps you essentially, you know, reinvent the wheel a little bit. Um, we always talk about not reinventing the wheel, but in this case, if we were just doing the same thing over and over again, we wouldn't actually be ameliorating any of the situations that you see. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. It at the beginning and kind of 
as we move through every project that we do, we are exercising some judgment about where uh, we need more information. And um, most of these sites are, they're all bigger than an easel painting. They are all more complex than an easel painting. And uh, we know that we can't collect exhaustive information. And so we, we have to make judgments about what's important. Uh, frequently, those judgments that we make at the uh, beginning of a project have to be amended uh, in response to information that we, we gather along the way. Um, uh, we, we've been talking about this in terms of, of structures, um, and I know Angeline has had a number of projects, uh, and I have two, and we've worked on some together that that are re- uh, really about landscape features. Um, and um, Dad, can I chime in a minute? I just yeah. have to tell this one story before we discuss issues at a landscape level. But uh, when I first started to work with Doug, um, I told him that I try to reduce my scope in a project from the beginning to the end. And he kind of laughed because he thought I was trying to get out of work. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what I was trying to do was to minimize the in- interventions that we were going to make. And at the beginning of their project, you have big plans about all the things um, that you want to do and all the repairs that you want to make. But as you start to understand the building technology or the materials and you start to focus on where the problems occur uh, and with the goal of minimizing your interventions to focus specifically on where the problems occur, um, you uh, you end up reducing your scope um, and your treatments become uh, more focused on protecting the material integrity and the physical authenticity in site and less on um, jerk reactions to treating a building. So the science is important to understand the materials and the building technology so that we can minimize interventions. At Bandelier, we were asked to look at the structural stability of a small prehistoric masonry wall, uh, one of the last walls surviving on... Uh, a cave there. Um, but we couldn't miss the fact all the time that we were doing this work that uh, what was so much more interesting was everything surrounding the wall. There was a boulder that had detached above the wall from the rock outcrop and was now sitting on the wall. Uh, damage to the rock below the wall had resulted in erosion of the rock, undermining part of the wall. And so while we, we, we did our, you know, what was in our scope, we very quickly uh, got onto the issue of the stability of the outcrop itself. And, uh, and in pursuing that, we noticed this, this was a project that required several years. Um, we noticed that a lot of the outcrop 
faces that uh, appeared to be stable and hard and competent um, were covered with lichens and other microflora. And that got us on to the topic of how those lichens and microflora contributed to the case hardening of those outcrop surfaces over uh, periods of time. Um, you know, and we even noticed that the hand and toehold trails and the petroglyphs that had been carved into the tough cliff face uh, had a case hardening effect to them, so that it, it was clearly something that had occurred since the time they were made, which is uh, relatively fast. Um, that issue of of how the case-hardened surfaces form uh, hadn't been studied for this volcanic rock that the caveats at Bandelier carved in. It turned out to be an exceedingly complex issue, and the, the team that formed around that research uh, before it was, I started to say before it was over, well, not done yet, but um, uh, it very quickly came to include uh, conservators and geologists and geochemists and geomorphologists and mineralogists and soil scientists and lichenologists and archaeologists, um, all to uh, answer a question that uh, we feel at this point uh, definitely touches on the stability of those resources, but may or may not ever uh, throw off an approach to treatment apart from uh, don't remove the lichens, whatever you do. Um, so anyway, I, that's one of my favorite examples of uh, multidisciplinary uh, research team taking on a, uh, a research task that uh, uh, continues to open the, the longer we pursue it. And Matt and Charlotte, uh, an important plug I'm going to make here at this point is that um, a lot of the science um, is done through the CESU project. Um, and that's the beauty of that program, is that you can make the resources of um, multidisciplinary groups, um, uh, the resources, the scientific resources of universities together to do research that's not commonly done um, under, uh, under a contract. Um, so it's a, um, through those CESU projects, we've been able to pursue um, the um, Case hardening uh, phenomena, the tough, the um, plaster, or earthen plaster characterization, um, uh, uh, paint analysis, um, looking at the um, how color uh, is a important component of earthen plasters and earthen sites. Um, it's specialized research that um, has uh, been able to flourish through the CESU program. Right. So. Um just for the listeners, uh, the CESU program allows the Park Service to partner with universities to reach out to people with specializations that may not be a part of the federal government. So it is a really important tool for us. Um, and to sort of touch on the point, you know, the history of a, 
have historic preservation everywhere, but in the Park Service, as an example, um, we've made the mistake in the past, in the distant past, of making treatment decisions sort of in a vacuum. So you have one or two people, they think they know what's best, they make a decision that ends up, you know, maybe damaging the structure over time. So it's so important to have multiple disciplines, multiple opinions or perspectives on a problem, uh, and to sort of consider all of those possible variabilities and all of that complexity that may come along with, as you guys mentioned, making a treatment decision in the short term, but also how uh, that treatment will affect the site in the long term as well. So uh, it is really important. I, I, I don't want to miss out, though, on, on the fact that um, interdisciplinary teams can consist of scientists, but uh, also traditional craftspeople as well. So for the listeners, that can be um, folks that are trained in using traditional materials, uh, like Adobe, uh, for instance, um, and, and uh, traditional construction techniques. So how important do you guys think it is to work with craftspeople to understand traditional building and maintenance techniques? And is it difficult to combine the science and the tradition? I think it's critically important. I, uh, while you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that a lot of the uh, wood structure work that I've done in recent years, uh, the teams have included uh, usually an engineer, at least one engineer, a wood scientist, and at least one timber framer, somebody familiar with archaic framing forms um, so that the team has a, a leg up in understanding what they're looking at initially. Um, I think if, if, uh, if you want to know, it seems obvious in the saying of it, but if you want to know how something has changed over time, it's important to know how it started out. And, um, Frequently, how it started out uh, involves tons of details that aren't available to scientists looking at something that's 500 years old, for example. Um, there may be pieces of a truss that are uh, gone. Um, things like the water content of a lime or mud plaster. Um, that's not something a scientist encounters in in their work. Uh, so um, I think on nearly every um, project that we work on, uh, there are traditional craftspeople involved uh, uh, in making repairs to an old structure. Um, it's almost always critical that the repair materials are physically compatible with the original materials if the, the repaired structure is going to perform correctly. And uh, that means a lot of times using traditional materials, the same materials, um, uh, is the best option for repair. Um, the craftspeople that are skilled in the use of these materials have knowledge about uh, 
harvesting the materials, the mixes, the layout, and so on that uh, are really not uh, discoverable by scientists, but directly impact the the durability of the repair. Um, so it doesn't preclude the use of modern materials in combination with not at all materials, though. Um, but the um, craftspeople have um, uh, a familiarity with the with the working properties of the material that ends up in a repair that has uh, performance properties that are appropriate, um, but that also have aesthetic properties that are essential for sites where you visitors um, uh, uh, interact with the site. A wonderful development in the way that so many of us pursue our work uh, that uh, kind of starting from the history of technology piece, uh, having the advantage of someone uh, on the team who knows how the thing, the building, the structure, whatever it is, uh, likely looked at at the beginning and um, why the materials were selected the way that they were for their different roles in a complicated piece. Um, that uh, sort of fills in a gigantic blank that uh, no amount of uh, understanding the fungi that are attacking the wood trust, for example, would ever uh, uh, offset. Um, Angela and I was thinking about uh, back at Desert View again, where the um, where you are using uh, conservation grade materials to create a barrier layer over parts of the background plastic, rather than modify or alter the integrity of the painting, we are trying to tone the background. So that the stains are not as noticeable and the paintings come to the forefront. Uh, and um, the walls, um, because they're 80 years old and have had a variety of uh, types of stains, um, they're very modeled in appearance. And so uh, we have uh, had a team of decorative painters uh, with small paint brushes and a palette um, matching, um, trying to out um, to tone the stains away. Um, so that um, the paintings, which are the important parts, are uh, are, uh, are highlighted, and that was the approach to conservation that seemed um, uh, a little uh, different. People think paintings are restored; you repaint the paintings, but instead, we painted the stains out of the background, so the integrity and authenticity of the paintings could stand proud. And craftspeople, decorative painters, were essential to the success of that treatment type. Doug, one thing that you mentioned um, caught my attention. Uh, you said that uh, craftspeople can be important for understanding the ways that, for instance, builders in the past uh, would process materials or apply materials, um, which makes me think that often in the Park Service we interpret 
prehistoric buildings, particularly places like Casa Grande Ruins or Chaco Canyon or Montezuma Castle, you name it, um, as the product of unskilled laborers. So we've we've been guilty in the past of saying, you know, look at look at what these farmers built. Um, but do you think that's true, uh, or perhaps um, maybe some of these amazing places were built by people who had a lot of engineering uh, and construction knowledge and were purposely choosing materials or construction techniques for certain purposes. Can, can you guys talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I um, I guess I think just to point out first that uh, prehistoric builders probably were not always setting out to create monuments and um, some of what was built was almost undoubtedly intended for a very short period of service and um and some of that stuff comes down to us and and we look at it and think uh what were they doing um what were they thinking um i also think that that the construction is sometimes interpreted as unskilled or uninformed because of uh differences in aesthetics or function. And I think when we're dealing with structures that are several hundred years old or older, uh, maybe the first question to ask is what the builders got right. And I think uh, that frequently results in a pretty long list, uh, especially when you consider that a lot of the materials used in the American Southwest, for example, um, earth and wood, a lot of it, uh, are considered ephemeral or at best moderately durable. Um, and we've just found in our own experience that sometimes by paying close attention to the materials, um, we're able to see that they've been carefully manipulated and uh, Angela and I both know archaeologists who have said uh, earthen plasters they are they are just mud and paying close attention to them you're not going to see anything but what kind of mud is readily or was readily available at that site um but um you know we've sort of entered a a time period where uh, the instrumental techniques available to us uh, can make use of exceedingly small samples to yield uh, huge amounts of information. And, uh, you know, we sampling to do the kind of work that we're doing with Southwestern plasters right now, for example, uh, was uh, not possible uh, not so long ago in the future just because the samples had to be so big to extract uh, the information that the that the impact on the on the resources was thought too great um, but with these kind of very up to date techniques uh, we're finding that earthen plasters while they do reflect the the soils that are available on different sites, and so they vary from place to place to place. They also 
uh, reflect an attempt to uh, manipulate the components in those plasters to optimize performance for a particular use. And we think that suggests that uh, uh, these builders working in building traditions that are hundreds or thousands of years old, uh, that they are not uninformed, that they are armed kind of with the uh, uh, information produced by their predecessors over long periods of time, um, and certainly operating without the scientific vantage point that we possess today, but not on that account operating without uh, well-developed engineering and structural uh, information that uh, probably informed nearly everything that they did build. And I, I think that that's important for us because that allows us in our interpretations of these places to kind of judge the buildings on their own merits, essentially on the, competen- the competencies of the builders, as you said, um, instead of making assumptions uh, that are, you know, may, may be unfounded. So um, I, you know, we've really appreciated the work that, that both of you have done uh, at many of our sites because it kind of gives us the, the data to, to make interpretations that are more informed uh, and maybe in some ways more interesting to our visitors. I think it's more interesting to think about uh, the things that the builders did right than to assume that you know they were just farmers kind of cobbling something together. You know, I'm sure we encounter buildings cobbled together by farmers <laughs> and um, and sorting the the difference. I you know sometimes. It's obvious, I, I would guess, and, and sometimes maybe, maybe less so. Uh, in the national park system, we've got tons of resources that, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of the extraction structures that uh, are frequently made of wood, and and that I end up working on quite a bit. And boy, the uh, service lines for those things were thought of in just a handful of decades. Uh, Mine structures frequently were uh, in service for uh, less than a quarter century. Um, And uh, national parks now have uh, conservation responsibility for for these structures. Uh, Even these structures have... uh, evidence of or kind of embody in a way the uh, collected wisdom of uh, builders who went before. Um, And I agree with you that uh, we can sort of uh, maybe take um, a more neutral uh, approach to the the buildings, uh, just acknowledge that uh, if the great house at Casa Grande has been there for 750 years and only sheltered for a hundred years or so of that time period, uh, that there's a, a great deal that the, the original builders did uh, correctly, and that uh, resulted in the in the longevity of that 
that place by focusing on how the different pieces work together to uh, deliver that that longevity, uh, I think we start to get an idea of how complex uh, a system the their uh, approach to construction was. Yeah, and I think at so many of these parks, like Montezuma Castle and Casa Grande, the average visit time is so short that it's easy to fall back into very answering very simple questions. You know, how did they get up into Montezuma Castle? Um, you know, what was this building used for? And it's a lot more fun to have those, you know, complex conversations about who these people were and, um, you know, what kind of skills they had and how their society was probably very stratified and um, a lot people a lot more like us than um, than we often give them credit for, right? Um, and it's data that we get out of agreements like the CSU and, and the research that you guys are doing that allow us to be able to have those conversations in a way that still recognizes that people are on quick road trips and just making a stop. <laughs> um, I probably should let Angela weigh in on this. We ha- I don't think we've mentioned during this interview that uh, our work at Montezuma Castle and two or three other uh, ancient southwestern sites uh, where we're specifically concerned with earthen plasters. That work is ongoing. Um, But at Montezuma Castle, uh, we've become aware of, uh, of the fact that plasters and builders were using uh, more than one borrow site for uh, uh, mortars and plasters. We don't understand yet uh, why they were using two different kinds of, uh, of soil to make this stuff. Um, we've come to suspect that the colors of washes found on the dado portions of uh, many of the interior walls uh, may have a, a significant um, uh, beyond performance, <laughs> beyond performance. Montezuma Castle also has some um, some very interesting aspects to it. We learn a lot while we're on these sites, uh, and um, and that's that's the joy that we get out of um, out of working at these uh, at these places. But at Montezuma Castle, um, there are um, hand prints finger and um, hand impressions and you can see the sort of the soft tissue application that the builders um, through the plaster you can see the sweeps of tools that they use to smooth it uh, and finger impressions where they've tried to um, smash the mortar or plaster in between joints or around um, uh, roofing elements Um, it's those aspects of uh, humanity that are also so important um, in these sites. Um, they, like you said, Charles, they um, connect us all. So those are uh, Montezuma Castles of Jewel. Uh, so architecture uh, can contain really a wealth of information about the past, um, particularly about the lives of the people that built the places um, and, and about the lives of the occupants. Uh, can you give the listeners an example of a project where your study of architectural features 
uh, told us something that we didn't already know? Well, tenants, um, we had a, um, we were at, um, uh, looking at a 12th century key at Natural Bridges National Monument. Um, our goal was to pretty straightforward to survey the interior finishes, uh, do a condition assessment and make recommendations for conservation. Uh, and we, when we started, we knew there were, um, incisings on the interior plaster. Um, some plaster glyphs of uh, um, sandals primarily. Um, but through our investigation, we started to realize that there was a very practical function to the room uh, and that um, it was primarily dedicated to weaving, but not only of sandals, um, but of textiles. Uh, there are over 150 incised tiny in size designs on the interior of these kiva walls. Uh, and the kiva is only about uh, three and a half meters in diameter. So they were images of, um, of sandals, of all different types of sandals with different toe jogs, um, uh, fabrics such as uh, trump lines and blankets, uh, a lot of um, uh, scoring marks that may have had to do with uh, weaving um, that took place in the room. Uh, we found loom anchors all over the floors um, that were just below the surface. Um, you know, the um, the room was just filled with uh, with dust and debris and pack rat droppings. But um, the uh, just by moving uh, in the room, we started to notice series of loom anchors uh, in the ground. Um, there were traces of hair, human hair, and uh, cotton uh, in, embedded in the floor material. Um, the, um, in the nichos, there were weaving tools like a spindle whorl and um, some other um, small weaving implements. Um, and we finally started to realize that... Um, this was a room dedicated to one type of, at least at this point, uh, at the end point, uh, to one type of uh, of uh, production. The um, and this understanding too didn't just come from us spending time in the room; it came again from using a multidisciplinary um, uh, group of of investigators. Uh, there was an archaeologist who was who specialized in sandals who was dedicated to just um, looking at the uh, incisings. Uh, there was a, we had a uh, professional photographer there. Um, the interior of the kila is very dark, uh, and it has an intact roof, uh, and Doug can address some of the um, sort of sophistication of the roofing elements um, in its construction. But um, it was very dark in the room, so we had a professional photographer finally take some um, photos where we could see uh, everything uh, in raking light. He did a, uh, an RTI or a, um, a form of photography where we are allowed to move the light source around on the computer to get uh, relief of, um, to see low relief uh, with a, um, sort of a raking light effect to study low relief incisings. Um, we had uh, an engineer look at the construction of the roof um, so we could understand the loads 
that would be imposed by visitors walking over the site, which sort of informed our decision of whether of how to treat the site in the future. It wasn't so much trying to treat or conserve the plaster as it was trying to reduce visitor load on the on the roofing elements. Uh, but from that study came an understanding of how the room was used, um, at least in its later stages, and it was the beginning of our understanding that earthen plasters are are engineered, are manipulated to suit performance properties. The floor plasters were very different from the wall plasters, which were different from the margin, margin plasters, which were different from the roofing material plasters. They all basically used the same materials, but the combination of particle sizes, the porosity, the water content, all made a difference in terms of um, their performance properties. So long story, but um, analysis by a multidisciplinary group um, and sustained analysis both at a microscopic level and at a physical level by surveying um, and studying photography um, shed light on a very, very important um, kiva uh, that preserved some of the day-to-day -day domestic activities that might have taken place at that site. So, uh, Doug and Angela, thanks so much for talking with us today. Matt, thank you. Um, this was a lot of fun, and um, I think the questions kind of uh, put some of the information together for us in ways we hadn't entirely anticipated. That was cool, too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for that. One of the big uh, take-homes from Doug and Angeline's interview is this idea of interdisciplinary cooperation um, in historic preservation and in archaeological research. And they do a really good job of illustrating um, their partnership and how they work well together. And they sort of work at different scales. Uh, so Angeline does a lot of the sort of uh, smaller scale preservation of plasters and paints, for instance, while while Doug is looking at um, things on a, a sort of larger, maybe engineering scale. So the way that they work, they really complement each other nicely. Um, and that is kind of a good tie-in to how the National Park Service works with cooperators in general. Um, the Park Service has archaeologists in a lot of the parks here in the American Southwest, um, but each archaeologist may have a different specialization. So uh, we all have a degree in anthropology with a specialization in archaeology, but we may be interested in different things. Um, so we can't cover everything. We don't know everything about archaeology all over the Southwest. And so by bringing in these folks who have different specializations, we kind of are able to um, get the right information about what we need, uh, and we don't have to necessarily learn it ourselves. Uh, and if we bring in a lot of cooperators into these big interdisciplinary teams, then we're able to cover a lot of ground. And um, like the instance with uh, some of the things that were talked about in the interview, we get a really comprehensive view of how to take care of um, these very important places.
So now's the time when we answer listener questions, and uh, I have one here. And it says, um, when I'm hiking around somewhere like Fort Bowie and I find something I think might be historic, like a bottle I, that looks really, really old maybe, what should I do with it? Should I bring it to a ranger? Should I let it be? Should I take it home? Um, so uh, we actually get a fair number of people bringing in like historic nails and things like that uh, to the visitor center at Fort Bowie. And we are really, really happy that visitors are excited about objects on public land and about visiting their National Park Service sites in general. Um, at the same time, we need to make sure that everyone out there knows that um, this is illegal. Uh, you can't pick up objects from Park Service and certainly take them home. And even if you're bringing it to a ranger, um, that actually takes away the context of the artifact. Um, and context means uh, that everything that's around the artifact, all the other artifacts, the, even the soil types that, that the artifact is in, um, that helps give us a better picture of what happened at that place. So for instance, Matt, what are three things in your living room at home? Oh my gosh, uh, my couch, uh, my bookshelf, and my television. Okay, so say in about 50 years, you're long gone from your house um, and we've all disappeared. Uh, someone comes along and is like, that's a really nice couch. And so they take the couch. And then in another uh, couple years, someone comes along and is like, I really like that historic TV. And so they take that TV. So when I, as an archaeologist, come along in 100 years, I'm going to see those bookshelves and think, you know, I think that this dwelling was a library. So because of all the context that was lost in those intervening 100 years, I don't have a really good picture of what actually happened in that place. And I make some uh, erroneous uh, conclusions. Um, so for everyone out there, please leave items where they are. Um, you know, definitely we want you to be excited and, and to get an idea of um, the parks that you're visiting. So, so definitely check them out, but leave them where they are. Take note of the location and then let uh, a ranger at the visitor center or an archaeologist that you might run into know about them. Um, and they can, uh, can go and get more information about them and make sure that they're, um, uh, all of the information and data that we can collect about them is put into our management systems and we can better manage um, all of these places in perpetuity. Thanks for listening. Join us next month when we will talk with uh, conservation professionals who work at the Western Archaeological and Conservation Center in Tucson. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.